I think I just always felt cool here. I always felt comfortable and good. I loved the the pace of life and um and the way that people approach living. You know, New York is amazing. Um and I really loved it and and I I lapped it up while I was there, but it's just so fast-paced that uh I just felt like I I'm naturally fast-paced and and being a fast-paced person in a fast-paced city can just result in you like waking up when you're 80 and not knowing what happened to your life. And I, I didn't want that to happen. There's a great Joan Didion quote that I would butcher about her, something along the lines of uh, walking down Sixth Avenue, walking to the, one of those revolving doors and coming out like 20 years older. And that's something that I've been able to <laughs> relate to deeply. And I can't figure out, I mean, I think everybody's conception of time has really warped in particular over the last two years, but I, I've always been trying to sort of decouple how much of the speed of the last like you know 15 to 20 years of my life have been just getting older and how much of it is being in new york yeah i mean it's it's a challenging place to live i think that's what makes it so amazing is that um every day you wake up and you're forced to meet challenges even if that challenge is just washing your clothes you know <laughs> New York or otherwise, or some days I think just getting up and washing your clothes can be a challenge regardless. It is definitely harder when you have to walk down five floors with your laundry bag and then 15 minutes in the snow to a place that will probably lose half of the things that you, uh, that you take there. <laughs> As you said, you effectively lucked out on the timing there, but I mean, yeah. that's, it's been a pretty good place to write all this out. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. I mean, I live in a very tiny village and you know it's it's uh the polar opposite of, of where i was in brooklyn so having both experiences has been amazing you know i mean i i'm really glad i lived in new york for over a decade and i'm really glad i moved here i, I it's not like i got sick of it and left i actually left because i liked it too much yeah i mean this is obviously a good place to be as a professional musician i would imagine just in terms of nightly opportunities yeah i don't think there's another place in the world that can compare actually, you know, if you're talking about diversity of music and quantity and quality of that quantity, I think, yeah, there's there's really no other place that comes close. Is there anything like that around where you are? It, was there an existing community or have you been able to kind of help foster one? I mean, I didn't really move here to play, you know, I mean, I moved here to produce out of my home, to be able to record from home and have artists come here and to be near an airport. Because most, you know, 98% of my playing happens um, on tour. So having a strong music community here was not one of the criteria. Um, but that said, there are some wonderful musicians here. And, and you know, talk, when you talk about like folkloric music like flamenco or, um, you know, there's some really interesting music in, on the Iberian Peninsula, you know, guy, uh, Galician music is really special and distinct and then of course you have fado in portugal and stuff so there's a lot of really amazing stuff around and um you know you can find incredible musicians in those scenes you know obviously the majority of what i play is basically black american music and so we're kind of far away from that community so you know it's it's a little more limited in terms of the you know number of people really dealing with like gospel and jazz and stuff but um but again that's not why i moved here you know um but there are some some really good players yeah insofar as it's ever possible to like truly be far away from black american music from the standpoint of it just like 
I, you know, obviously being, I would say one of our cheap global exports probably of the past 100 years. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it's everywhere, but that doesn't mean that there's proximity to the culture and the community that birthed that music. And that's to me, um, a very important factor in how well people engage with a genre. You know, I mean, the fact that black American music is all over the world in every department store and restaurant and, you know, cover band gig. I mean, yes, that's increased exposure for people who want to learn it. But if you're growing up in Indonesia and you've never been to a, a black church and you've never played a gig with someone who really grew up in that community, in that scene, you know, you're working at a disadvantage. Um, there are other advantages you might have in terms of your ability to reinterpret that music through your own lens, but it would make sense that the strongest black American seed in, in the world is in the United States. <laughs> that was very foundational for you and has been very pervasive in your music and the band's music, but you've always, you've always been interested in world music. That's something that you've always, I get the sense, have tried to kind of incorporate in some form or another. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, my family um, is from the US, but our uh, very recent ancestors came over from, you know, different European countries and, um, and uh, the Greek culture thing is very strong in my family. Um, you know, we still have loads of relatives living in Greece. And, you know, my mom grew up speaking Greek and cooking Greek food. And, um, you know, Christmas is always in Greek even though I don't speak it. I'm like the only one in the family who doesn't. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, from a very early age, I was listening to Greek music for sure. And my brother, who's five years older than me and is also a musician and an ethnomusicologist, was constantly exposing me to, you know, music from Brazil, music from Cuba, music from the Balkans, music from Scandinavia, music from Ireland, whatever. So there was, you know, yeah, definitely a, a healthy dose of of non-American musics in my ears from a young age. So yeah, I've, I've definitely been interested in it for a long time. That is a great resource to have as a kid, to have a, a brother that's like, so he's older, is that right? Five years, yeah. That's like the perfect amount of time. to. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the perfect age to have an older brother to really kind yeah. of immerse you into music. Totally. Including, as you alluded to, uh, you know, obviously sort of the, the culturally Greek stuff. Was Was there a lot of music around the house growing up? Yeah, I mean, my brother was also a, a traditional Irish musician, so um, there were always, like, sessions in the house, in the living room. I'd come home from school, and there'd be fiddle and Irish bazooki and tin whistle and flute or, you know, concertina, whatever, like, all these crazy instruments that I had never really gotten familiar with, you know, people playing in my house. and um, And then, you know, I would go to my brother's gigs. And yeah, so I mean, I would say that the majority of the experiences that I had as a young person were through him. I'm assuming that that at least to a certain extent, your parents had to have been supportive of both of you getting into music if it was available to you in that way. Yeah, I mean, my dad is actually uh, like career military. <laughs> that is not a story you hear a lot, like specifically yeah. people getting into music. That's an interesting one. Yeah, definitely. Um, but a huge music fan, especially like classic rock. And my mom um, studied flute at Florida State, which is where my brother teaches now, actually, in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, but as for a career, she, like, did childcare, you know? So, my dad was in the military, my mom was doing childcare. There, it wasn't like there was this 
heavy kind of occupational musical presence in the house. It was always just like a casual and and a hobby kind of thing and and a passion of both my parents listening to music. I don't know why my brother and I turned into musicians, but we did. You know, I mean, I know why I did because he did. You know what I mean? So little brothers tend to follow along. So that's kind of kind of how it went for me. I don't know what his excuse was. It was that profound of an influence that was really him getting into it that really drove you to get super serious about it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's exposure is everything, right? So if you come home every day and you hear people playing, it just starts to become a part of who you are, you know? Um, and so you start to kind of seek to replicate that. And, and of course, you know, I, my brother was playing mostly jazz and Irish music when, when I was just starting to play. So of course I was like, no, I don't want to do any of that. You know, I want to play classic rock. And like, I was learning like Zeppelin and cream and stuff like that. And then eventually I kind of like slowly slipped into the jazz thing and then never came out, I guess. That is a very funny thing of like both being very, very much following his lead and obviously respecting what he did to such a point that you wanted to do it, but also really trying to kind of, I guess, blaze your own way at the same time to, to sort of do it in, in your own style of music. Yeah. I guess at that age, you're constantly staging mini rebellions, you know, because that's what mine was. I, I suspect, especially, you know, given what your parents did for a living and that they were fairly pragmatic when it came to things like that. Was there an expectation that that music was something that you could actually do for a living? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think my parents were very, very supportive about that. I mean, they've always been big into the like, if you believe in what you do and you work hard, you'll make it happen. You know, that wonderful, rugged, individualist American attitude, you know, and, and I, 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 um, the only heat that I got from them was just like, work harder, you know, cool. If you're going to do music, do it, but work harder, you know? And so, yeah, you know, I went to a jazz school in Texas, the University of North Texas, and um, they were very supportive with that. And yeah, I mean, I think they were a little bummed out that I dropped out. I know they were very bummed out that I dropped out, but they got over it eventually. <laughs> what drove that decision? Just sort of the realization that you were able to, I guess, the desire to do music professionally in a in a different way? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went to school to learn music and to get gigs. And by my fourth year of college, I was playing almost every night. And, um, and I had taken all the classes that I'd wanted to take at, at the school. The only classes I had left were like college algebra and history of Texas government, you know? So I was like, man, I can't, I can't do that for three more semesters, you know? So yeah, I bailed. Um, and I don't regret it. I was It was the right thing to do, you know. How useful of a process is going to school for jazz in the first place? I mean, if I've heard, you know, and I, I talk to a lot of artists about this too. It's always, it's always a bit of a mixed bag. When you're making a decision like that, like, do I move to a new city? Do I go to a school to study music? I think you just have to know yourself and say, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And how will this decision reduce my weaknesses and improve my strengths, you know? And for me, I think I had a very passionate approach to music. I really felt music deeply. Um, 
and I had a lot of imagination and and creativity as a musician, but I had like no fundamentals. You know, I did I did I couldn't really play my. I just started playing bass. I couldn't really play it very well. I didn't have a real serious knowledge of the role of the instrument in different genres of music and styles, and um, I was lacking a lot of music theory and just basically nuts and bolts. And North Texas is one of the best schools I could possibly imagine for nuts and bolts. You know, I mean, uh, I went there and I got my butt kicked immediately. I realized that I was way behind most of the students my age. Um, and it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to do but practice. So it was perfect. You know, um, it definitely created the foundation for the musician that I am today. Um, it created the, let's say like the non-inspirational foundation. You know what I mean? I think, you know, other experiences that I had musically throughout my life were the things that really formed who I am as a creative musician. I wouldn't say that North Texas did that. I would say that it it made me solid. You must have had some kind of foundation. I'm guessing if you're able to even get into the school to study it, right? I mean, you weren't, you weren't completely new. No, 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 no. I had been playing guitar for like four years. But I switched to bass just before going to college. Why in the world did you do it when you did it? I mean, it's a it, because I uh, my senior year of high school, I had no intention of switching to bass, but we had three guitarists in the school jazz band and no bass player. So they asked me if I wanted to play bass. So I said, sure. And I just fell in love with it. And, and um, I had auditioned for Indiana University in Bloomington on guitar like at the beginning of the year when I was still playing a lot of guitar. Um, and they accepted me and they gave me a really nice scholarship. Um, and, and then I just kind of dedicated all my time to bass. And I was thinking, well, over the summer before college, I'll go back to practicing guitar. And then in like, um, you know, in September, there were the terrorist attacks, 2001, um, in New York and DC. And, uh, and I got an email in like May from Indiana saying, so because of like the budget cuts due to all this like national security spending, we dropped our jazz guitar program. So you're still welcome to come to IU, but you have to study classical and you don't have a scholarship. <laughs> so I was like, oh man, no way. So I had like two weeks to audition because North Texas was one of the only good jazz schools in the country that still had its application process um, open and I hadn't touched a guitar in like six months. So I thought, well, I'm playing a lot of bass now. I'll just audition on bass. And actually it was probably the smartest thing I ever did in my life because everybody always needs a bass player. Nobody needs a guitar player, you know? So, um, actually, uh, I ended up being very fortunate in that sense. So you had enough fundamentals or enough foundation at that point that you were able to at very least pass the audition. Yeah. They granted me provisional, admittance, I guess is the, is the word, to the school. So they said, look, it's obvious that you're new to this instrument, but it seems like you have some musical ability. So come on, we'll give you one year. Uh, basically, I was on like probation for my first year, you know, just to see if I could hack it. And I kind of barely squeaked through with the the necessary um, requirements at the end of the first year. And, you know, I mean, I worked hard, you know, I was playing like eight to 12 hours a day, you know, like everybody else there. There's a a way in which that was actually a net positive, right? And it, it forced you to get good or at least better very quickly in a way you wouldn't have otherwise. Totally. Yeah. And I think really ultimately the two 
greatest things that educational institutions offer students that are studying music, especially like modern music, um, are a very strong peer community that then goes on to become like your network of friends and, and collaborators and colleagues for the rest of your life. And number two, like a rigid kind of a regimen, you know, a structure that you can't just sit around for five days and watch Netflix and not get anything done. You'll be kicked out of the school, you know, whereas if you're just at home, you're left to be your own disciplinarian. And um, I'm not great at that. Can you identify what it was about bass that you connected with so well? Um, I think I've always been kind of like a, 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 a wannabe drummer and bass is the bridge between the, the, you know, the percussion, the percussion element of the band and the, the, the melody element of the band. So, um, it felt like a nice little halfway house. Um, I felt like I could kind of be a drummer and get in with the drums while not abandoning kind of like a very, you know, melodic approach altogether. I, I'm always curious looking at jazz bands in particular that it, there's no like, you know, it may, may be piano, but, it, but, but beyond that, there's no really sort of like one singular instrument when it comes to who ends up being the leader of the band. It's like kind of surprisingly democratic across a genre in the way that other genres aren't. Is it a good place though to be if you're going to be effectively the kind of um, the default leader of a band? I think any place is cool. I think as a bass player, you know, my main challenge in leading Snarky Puppy and playing was that it's difficult to lead with your body and with your mind and with the energy that you put out as the musical director while still playing bass like you're standing in the back of the stage in the shadows. You know, that's a hard thing for me that for many years, if I wanted the band to play differently, I would like try to kind of initiate it from the bass chair and it just never sounded good. You know what I mean? It always felt like I was playing against the band. So being able to kind of divide my mind in half and say like, all right, cue the soloist, you know, talk to the audience, do all these things that you have to do as a leader. But when your finger is touching the strings on your instrument, play like you're anonymous, you know, play like a good, supportive, humble, in the shadows kind of bass player. Um, and that's taken me years and years and years to finally start to do. And I, I, I feel like after 20 years, it's not about be like, I'm just now able to do that. The bass doesn't cut through the way a lot of the other solo instruments do. Well, when it, when it stops being a bass and starts trying to boss people around musically, everybody sounds bad. <laughs> Whereas like, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you're playing in like a, you know, Jimi Hendrix's trio or something. It's like Hendrix can can push the band around with the guitar, you know, and it sounds amazing, you know. But when you're doing it from a bass chair in a band like mine, where the bass is not the the focus really ever, um, it's not not a, not a nice thing musically. I think I said like de facto band leader. Is that a fair description? I mean, at the very least, like you're you're kind of the the most consistent member there. But is it? It seems fairly democratic as far as the actual song compositions go. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the de facto leader. I mean, I think I'm, I'm the active leader. I mean, I started the band and I'm the only one that's played every gig and I do 
deal with the administrative stuff. It's my company. So, I mean, it really is my band. But that said, as the years go on versus, you know, the first record where I wrote every song, the last record we made, I wrote one fourth of the songs. I've definitely backed off on stage as far as like having like a leader mentality and energy and off stage as well, you know, like the band is democratizing very much so. But that, yeah, of course, I mean, I'm kind of the the person who is um, in charge of that democratization, you know. And I like it, you know. I, I think now everybody knows what the band is. We don't need the kind of leader that we needed 15 years ago. You know, I think it's only natural. There's too many talented people with too many, you know, interesting and unique opinions for it just to be me telling everybody what to do all the time, you know, like it was in the very, very, very beginning. So I, I yeah, I, I think it's opening up in every kind of way. And I'm very excited to see what effect that has on the group. It's interesting to hear you describe it that way as far as telling people what the band is, because I think that's fair in that, you know, there are a lot of ways in which it is not a traditional band. That must have been a difficult message to get across for the first, I don't know, like 10 or so years. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's natural. You you start a band with college kids and everybody just wants to play like their hero, no matter what the gig is, whether it's musically appropriate or not, you know? And, and so in the beginning, I had to give a lot of instruction, create, you know, like creative direction about the sound that I was hearing in my head for the group and not just like, okay, I'm going to get this drummer that loves Brian Blade and plays like Brian Blade. I'm going to get this guitar player that loves Kurt Rosenwinkel and plays like Kurt Rosenwinkel and just have them do their thing. Like, no, like certain songs are going to need you to play in a way that you normally don't play. And, and it took years and years and hundreds and hundreds of gigs. But at a certain point, I think the band started to know really what it was we were doing, who it was we are and identified a sound it's like, oh, now this group has a sound. So then it stopped being my vision and it started being this collective understanding of who we are and what we're doing and what works and what does not. How close was that sound that you hit upon to the the one in your head? 50% what I imagined and 50% completely different, you know? Okay. That's still pretty good. I mean, getting pretty good, know, yeah. Yeah. 20 people in a room together and getting 50% is pretty good. Yeah, but I mean, I would—I don't mean for that to say that we accomplished fifty percent of my goal or something. I—I—I'm what I mean is that my vision changed, you know, over the years, and everybody's vision I think changed and adapted. So you know, the band that we are right now today is fifty percent what I originally intended twenty years ago, and fifty percent new surprises that that we've all come to to embrace. And I'm glad that it is like that because I, I feel like if it would be imbalanced either way, um, it wouldn't be a good thing. I think you have to have a plan and be ready to just totally abandon it if something better arises. And I think kind of an underrated or understated part of being a band leader is accepting that, you know, you've surrounded yourself with smart and capable people uh, and that it's okay if something doesn't sound exactly like it sounded in your head. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be of two minds at the same time, which is this one mind of like, I have this vision, I have this concept, I have this plan, and 
Like I know what it is I want to hear. And then you have to separate your mind and simultaneously be operating in this space in which you are listening to what is happening like an innocent child who has no preconceptions, right? And then you can, at any given moment, you're weighing which actually sounds better, my vision and my concept and my preconception or this other thing that's happening that isn't what I was expecting or wanting necessarily. And you definitely have to drop your ego and your pride and, and, and you have to be super flexible and super light. I don't know how else to describe it, like kind of light on your feet and light in your head to not just be bogged down by this, like, you know, you don't want these like concept handcuffs. Ultimately, the way that the group is structured has, has with, with the number of people that are kind of, you know, in, in the orbit, uh, has that ultimately been a strength for creating that, that sound and for, you know, I, I guess effectively staying together as a band? Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think if everybody still felt, you know, now almost 20 years later that they're just doing my bidding all the time, I think they would have found the door many years ago. I think if you're going to have people playing in a band long term, they really have to feel like it's their band and they're only going to feel that way if, if it's true. So yes, I'm the leader. I started the band. I still run it, but it's kind of all of our band now in a certain way, just with, you know, a specific distribution of responsibilities. Was that structure baked into the band effectively from the beginning? I think from the very beginning, everyone was pulling a lot of extra weight. You know, we went on our very early tours, we were sleeping on floors, everybody's bringing their own sleeping bag, we were setting up our own gear, we were all going around, spreading out and putting posters up. I think from that end, it's been baked in that, yeah, it's not just like people show up when it's time to play, everything's set up, they play and they go home. Um, it's very much been like a rock band vibe, but it's just that I was the one making all the decisions, booking the tours, managing it, funding it, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the way I think about this band is like everyone in the band has gone way above and beyond what normally happens in most bands. You know, it's just that, you know, as a leader, I've had to do extra, of course, as any band leader does. I'm not, I'm not even remotely special in that way, you know. Have you gotten better about being able to sort of delegate some of that work? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely worked on the control freak thing many years ago. It's not to say that I don't, I still don't have it in me, but yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it's like, you just have to trust people and you got to let people fail too, you know. For obvious reasons, we've been talking mostly musically, but I mean, you know, and, and it's and it's it's really interesting to hear you describe this because you really, you know, you the way you phrase it effectively like wearing two hats that there is there's a musical side of you which is, you know, I assume that again really really kind of feels it. And then there's the administrative side. And I'm guessing that as you get larger and more popular, you also have to delegate some of the administrative things as well. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I was the manager and the agent and all this stuff for, for, I mean, I was the manager for almost a decade, you know, and the booking agent for maybe eight years. So seven or eight, I, you find people you trust, you hire them, you let them do their jobs. Sometimes they're not going to do it the way you want it or the way that you would have done it. But in the end, it's like, it's not tenable or sustainable to do everything. You can't be the administrator and the creative chief 
and do both at 100%. But are you still effectively the one that says, hey, it's, you know, you throw up the bat signal, it's time to kind of to put an album together or to tour? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's not like our manager tells us when we need to record and what the concept of the record is. You know, I mean, I do that, but... Sure. I mean, I ask partially because I, I assume that just logistically, it's probably really difficult getting all this, especially now that everybody's like living, you know, you're you're on right. the other side of the world right now, that it's got to be a, a nightmare to, to, to organize all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I do the easy part. I say, let's make a record. It's going to sound like this. It's going to happen then. And then I say to our manager, you know, can you please make that happen? <laughs> So, I mean, you know, he has the the crap part of it. You know, I have the fun part of it. But, yeah, I mean, and I wouldn't say it's a nightmare organizing it because we've always been a band with people living in different cities um, and countries. And now we've got people in Canada, the UK, Spain, Portugal, the US, you know, so it, it's very, very spread out. But, you know, that's why people fly. You know, we we, we start tours together everybody just flies into the first gig and we're off you know we have a record everybody flies into the record and we're off it's really no different than everybody flying from the same city to a new city i mean i can't really vouch for this because i'm not much of a musician myself but most of the musicians i speak to say say that there's you know obviously something like special or magical of actually like being in a room with people and playing with them um obviously that's something a lot of people have been robbed of over the you know over the last couple of years is that aspect difficult when the group of you isn't spending the majority of your time being in the same place, you know, playing music together. Well, I mean, even when we lived in the same city, we didn't rehearse. So it's actually, we see each other just as much and rehearse just as much, which is basically zero as when we were living together in Dallas or New York. You know, the only time that we actively rehearsed regularly was like the first three years of the band when we were all at school in North Texas. But then after that, there was no rehearsals, you know. That's worked out pretty well for you? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, everybody takes care of their stuff. They're all responsible. They show up on the first day of the tour with everything learned. It's no issue, you know. I mean, it's great because then everybody has a lot of freedom and where they can go and what they can do. What's the process of actually putting the album together? I mean, you you know, you alluded to this abstract idea of sort of a, sort of a sound that ties everything together. Yeah, I mean, this last record, Empire Central, that's coming out at the end of September is, you know, really about Dallas. We recorded it in Dallas. It's where the band formed its sound effectively. And, um, you know, so I told people when they were writing, like, just think about Dallas, write this record for Dallas, you know, let your experiences in that city inspire the compositions. And so, you know, 12 different people wrote songs we got together, we rehearsed for a week, got 16 songs up, and then spent um, eight nights doing live uh, recording sessions in, in an art space, the Deep LMR company, in front of, uh, you know, a studio audience that was wearing headphones like us, hearing the music as we hear it. And we did eight nights of that. It's almost, I don't want to say like a homework assignment, but but in a way it is, right? It's its like, here is, here's a prompt. Here, here's a loose idea that I want you to start building music on top of. I've never done that. This was the first time. This was the first time that I ever like told the band to think about something specifically when they were writing. Normally it's just like, you know, write whatever you want and we'll play it and see if it sounds good, you know? Uh, but this time, yeah, we went... Uh, a little more specific with the brief. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think everybody appreciates that. I I, I think when you're younger, 
I'm not going to say I'm not young, but when you're younger, you know, you really have this burning desire to get out your thing. You don't want people to tell you what to do. You're trying to develop your thing and your sound. And then you have enough experience doing that and you start really wanting people to push you around and 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 into new directions. You know, I love it when somebody tells me, play exactly this or write something that does this. You know, I mean, maybe the first song that I wrote, I really didn't want anybody near me. I wanted to see what I was capable of. But then you write 150 songs and you're like, man, you know, let's write together. Let's like give me something strange to think about when I write or something specific. And I think everybody's in the same boat in that respect. Yeah, I, I think it's Sarah. And I think even, you know, the most the most creative people in the world still appreciate having parameters when it comes to actually sitting down and, you know, sort of st- staring at the blank page. Yeah, I think it's a know thyself situation. If you work better not having any preconceptions and no briefs and, you know, like that, then that's what you should do. If you're like a very distracted person like I am, you know, I like to have a set of rules, even if I make them myself for the song or, you know, and then I can break them as inspiration dictates, but like, you know, to go in with a plan, to stay focused. Otherwise, I can kind of just end up lost in space on a tangent, you know. For your own personal writing on, on this new record, using that prompt yourself, like, what is that? I mean, insofar as you're able to describe, again, this like fairly abstract process, but, you know, if, if, I, if I say Dallas to you, like, what do you do when you sit down and start composing? I mean, I think about groove. I think about soul. I think about funk. And I think about specific musicians whose style has kind of seeped into me, you know, just through influence. People like Bernard Wright, who appears on this record and sadly passed away about a month afterwards, very suddenly. R.C. Williams, Erica Badu's music director, Robert Sput Seawright, longtime member of Snarky Puppy and collaborator with everybody from Kendrick Lamar to, you know, Celine Dion, you know, Roy Hargrove. You know, these people who like, I learned their music, I transcribed their solos, I played gigs with them, you know, their their sounds got in me. So just kind of trying to access that was a priority when I was writing. You know, you, you mentioned Bernard Wright, and I, I think the album is also dedicated to him as, as well. At what point in the history of the band did he enter the picture? I started playing at a church with him three days a week in 2007. I think. Because he played on a record that we made in 2008 called Bring Us the Bright. So we were playing in church together. He took me around. He was my mentor for all intents and purposes for three years. Took me around, introduced me to all the people on the scene. I was playing gigs with him all the time. I was going to his gigs and setting up his keyboard and stuff, you know, when I wasn't playing, driving him around. He didn't have a car. And um, just trying to learn as much as I could from him, you know. And then he said, I want to play with your band. So I said, man, how am I going to say no to that? So he was actually the first place person who played like a synth in Snarky Puppy because before that, our keyboardist had either played Fender Rhodes or like a Nord keyboard with a Rhodes and piano patch or something, you know. But he was the first one that really brought in like the synth textures, which I was terrified of in that moment because I kind of thought of since as cheesy. I was like very much in that kind of jazz school thing. And very sounded, like dated, perhaps. Yeah. And- yeah. But you know, my scope was very, my vision was very limited, you know, 
I was a college, just like a stupid, snobby college kid, you know. Uh, now I'm just a stupid, snobby, non-college, older person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, uh, Bernard opened the whole thing up. He opened the whole thing up um, and played with us for, for several years, you know. And then it was so great having him come back and play so beautifully on this record. It's crazy the, what he what he did. It's, it's an incredible thing in life if you can experience it. Somebody who you really respect gets what you're doing, like understands it. it. It sounds like he sort of, like he understood what the mission of the band was. Oh, I mean, he wrote it as much as anybody just by being himself. I mean, just having him on stage and playing the way that he played showed Snarky Puppy how to play music. But basically, you know, I mean, his sound just became the band's sound, you know. It sounds like the, the kind of the micromanager or I think, as you said, the control freak in you was really able to shine on the solo record that you put out recently. Yeah, I guess the irony is that, you know, I was, it was so hard for me to make that record without having people around, you know, because I'm just used to having so many opinions. And, and I think I've developed that skill very well of like understanding how to balance all the opinions in the room and give everybody a chance for their thing to be tried and, and make everybody feel good, but also do the best thing for the music, what everybody feels is the best thing. And, and I just have never done anything by myself, you know, like really by myself, like playing every instrument, singing every part, writing every lyric, writing every note. And uh, thank God I had Nick Hard there, who was the co-producer and recording engineer for the record. Just having another, just one other opinion, you know, saved me because it was, it's just, I just forgot how to do that. You know, I lost that muscle of just like making all the decisions yourself without considering and listening to a bunch of other people's opinions. I mentioned this idea of surrounding yourself with really smart and capable people and being able to trust them. And, and having heard you describe the process of putting that record together, it sounds like you went as far in the opposite direction as possible. Like somebody who like obviously has all these resources and people he could potentially call to play any part on any song, you just decided, even if it wasn't going to be the best version of any of these parts, you were going to play it yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, it was a challenge for me. And and it's just, it's everything is a sound. Yes, there are way better guitar players and percussionists and bass players in the world and singers, God knows, than me in the world that I could have called to do this. But I wanted to see what my sound felt like on everything, you know. And also it was the pandemic. It was like, let, let's try something, you know I mean? Like, a learning experience, you know, and I learned a lot about myself, you know, as a musician during, during that recording process, it was, it was invaluable. It was wonderful, you know? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. I, I would, I would do it the exact same way if I had to do it again. You felt though that you were a lot closer to that hundred percent of the sound that you had in your head? No, no, because I, I think that it's just, if your ears are open, unless you're like, prescient or something, you know, it's always going to change. You know, you either have to be like, a, a, you either have to be able to see the future or be very, very stubborn to make a record and go through the entire process. And at the end say, that's exactly how I imagined it. No surprises. You know, I mean, I'm not that stubborn. I'm stubborn. I'm not that stubborn. You know, I mean, it's like you, you have a plan for a song, you start recording some sound that you didn't think would be very important all of a sudden is the coolest thing in the track and you start basing the track around that sound. You know, I mean, it's just, 
it's the natural thing. You go where the music tells you to go, not where your preconception tells you to go. There was something you said, I, I think, um, about the newest record. Uh, it was, uh, sorry, I'm going to quote you at yourself, which I know is, is awful, but uh, our rule is that it can't sound like it sounded before, which is an interesting line to walk when you are trying to have this sort of very clear and like somewhat consistent vision across across albums. But it sounds like that's a really important part of the history of the band is just continuing to try to push yourselves in new and not necessarily comfortable directions. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. In the end, pretty much everybody on stage comes from a jazz background. So I think everybody loves the pop mentality. But too much of either of those things is going to make everybody bored. You know, for the parts that have to be played pretty much the same every night, you play it the same notes, the same rhythm, but with a unique energy, depending on the room and the audience and how you're feeling and how the band is playing and all that kind of stuff, you know, and that's the way that we keep it fresh on the pop end. And then, you know, of course, improvisationally, you know, soloistically, people can go wherever they want. We start songs differently every night, you know, sometimes a song that normally starts with drums, I'll just say like, to the keyboard player, you start it. And we just see how we get into the song or whatever, you know, I mean, we try to keep it very open while not compromising the compositional integrity of the music. 